I was going to start this podcast by saying I'm back, but it always makes me think of that song in Dirty Dancing to let you know I can really shake it down. Do, 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 do. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's me, Damien Barr, welcoming you to another salon exclusive where you get to be the very first to hear about the upcoming books that we are most excited about. And there's so much coming out this spring and autumn because of the publishing backlog. So, big question this one what do we owe to our parents? Hmm depends which day you ask me. It's a question that we all ask ourselves from time to time. For author Lily Dunn, it's one which gets to the heart of her relationship with her dad. She has written a blazingly honest memoir. It's her debut and it is called Sins of My Father. In it, she tracks the life of this man, a seemingly charming, possible scoundrel, who abandoned his family on his own quest for spiritual enlightenment. Lily runs the London Lit Lab with author Zoe Gilbert, where she teaches seminars on literary memoir, so it is unsurprising that she has come out with a book that is so dazzling in this genre. One of our salon favourites, Amy Liptro, author of the best-selling The Outrun, says that although this story is Lily's own, she also speaks for a cohort. It is a victory of self-knowledge and compassion, as well as art. Now, coming from Amy Liptrot, that is high praise indeed. Here is Lily with a reading from her remarkable new book. Hello, my name is Lily Dunn, and I'm very happy to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my debut non-fiction book, Sins of My Father, a daughter, a cult, a wild unravelling. It's a literary memoir about my enduring love for a father who was charismatic and talented, but also a philanderer, an addict and a pathological liar. The extract I'm going to read is from the third chapter when my father finally left us for good to escape to India. My parents had been very much in love, both writers and publishers living the golden life in 1960s and 1970s London, but in the end my father was not able to escape his shadow. This is the moment we all lost him. Runaway. My parents had a sublime bed. Super king size, six foot wide, seven foot long, with a mattress from heels and an art deco, cherry wood and peach silk headboard shaped like a wave. It was so beautiful, my mother even wrote about it for Brides magazine. All four of us could fit into it at the same time. Mum, Dad, my brother and me, even the cat, curled up, unperturbed by the bump and shift of knees and feet. We had Christmas morning in this bed, opening our stockings, and Mum would sometimes play a game where she'd pretend wrap me and my brother up in brown paper to make a parcel ready to post us through the letterbox. I have a vague memory of early morning warmth tucked between my parents, Dad still here. There were not enough of these mornings. I imagined this enormous bed was the soul of our house. Mum's smelly creams and beauty regime and her dream diary tucked away in the bedside cabinet. Dad getting dressed in the morning in an elegant suit, clipping the leg of his trousers for the mammoth cycle ride from Islington to Kensington High Street, flying with the tails of his raincoat flapping in the wind behind him. But one day, when I was six, 
he woke up and decided to leave. This time for good. He just disappeared out of our lives, with no mention of when he would return. He bought a single ticket to India with a Dutch woman he had met at a peep club in Soho. She wanted to introduce him to her guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. My brother and I crawled into bed with our mum in the morning, but the space beside her was empty. There was more room for us, and yet our world had shrunk. My brother was eight when my dad made his real escape. Perhaps dad needed this operatic rupture of flight to a new identity in India to finally drag himself away. I wonder if he had become particularly restless when my brother turned seven the age he was when he was abandoned for the first time on the boarding school step. Or if he saw himself in his son, the son who would one day vanquish and replace him. But perhaps it was more mundane. His business was in financial trouble. His frantic juggling was beginning to fail. He was alarmed by his sexual incontinence and felt shackled by family and responsibility. Of course he would run away to an ashram in India where all your past could be erased and your future is created from your imagination. We were now reduced to three, just as his family had been all those years before, an awkward asymmetry. In Pune, the Indian sun was warm and rich with light. Sanyasins, Bhagwan's disciples, lived in wooden huts and abandoned Raj apartments, dotted around the enchanted Corrigan Park sleeping beneath high ceilings and clattering fans. They wore lungis, home dyed in colours of the first rays of the rising sun, maroon, orange and pink, traditional Hindu holy dress but without asceticism. Bhagwan's followers slung their malas around their necks and under an arm while they danced or made love. They worked as a community, cooking, cleaning, making crafts, running therapy groups while their red-ragged children played in the dust and dirt, but mostly they meditated. They faced their fears together beneath sweeping canvas canopies, their shoulders rocking and arms stretched up to heaven to the rhythm of live drums and a backdrop of palms, heat haze and bougainvillea. They breathed, they danced, they hollered. They then collapsed on the ground, still with silence, forming pink stars with their spent bodies. Bhagwan was seductive with his long, soft beard and flowing robes. He was beautiful too, with a smooth conquer head and mesmeric welling eyes. He was provocative and irreverent. In those early days, he dressed humbly in white. The mystic is a dropout, he pronounced in one of his discourses. The real revolutionary is not fighting anybody. He simply sees the absurdity of things and he drops out. Like the first hippies of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in the 1960s, Bhagwan believed change was only possible from inaction, a soulful step away from the system. This was as seductive as nectar to the swarms of Westerners looking for relief from the mundanity of their lives, the dullness of the cities where they lived, in jobs they found tedious, the ties of bills and mortgages, the captivity of parenthood. Bhagwan's central philosophy, that you can only be responsible for yourself, was my father's sweet honey. 
In the late 70s, there were thousands like him, wanting to be a part of this new religion. In the early days, Bhagwan had mostly an Indian following, but it soon grew to include crowds of Europeans and Americans, mostly middle class, educated and wealthy, emerging from the sexual revolution and LSD with its experiment in transcendence. But most of all, they were turning their backs on their parents' generation, characterised as the oppressors. Many felt that the hippies' attempts at liberation had failed and it was time to look within. After so many years of repression, conditioning went so deep that the individual could barely recognise it in themselves. It was in their bone marrow and their blood, in every breath and blink. The enemy, according to many, now lay within. This was the era of mysticism and psychotherapy, and Bhagwan packaged up both and offered it as a gift in his elegant, long-fingered hands. In 1978, 1979 and 1980, thousands of people came to the ashram, like my father, who took sannyas in 1979. A redeeming feature of Bhagwan's movement was that it promoted diversity, all creeds, all nationalities, all colours. He wanted to create the new man, a uniting of West and East, an experiment that his disciples were thrilled to be a part of. They were the chosen ones, and in the wonderful mood of 1970s naivety, they really believed that they had the power to change the consciousness of the planet. Bhagwan held the conventional trappings of family life in disdain, and gave his disciples permission to free themselves from their yokes. He encouraged his disciples to say, I'm not going to be a part of it. This way or that, neither for nor against. It is so stupid, I cannot even be against it. What a relief that they could finally laugh at everything that had previously seemed so loaded with duty. What joy they felt. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was first known to his disciples simply as Rajneesh fantastically translated by his followers as the blessed one who has recognised himself as God, or more accurately, from the Sanskrit as the blessed Lord of Darkness. Then just Bhagwan. Later, after his first run-in with the US government, he changed his name to Osho. He was also notorious as the Sex God, a branding first given by the Bombay Press in the Pune Herald following a series of lectures he had given on sexuality, from sex to superconsciousness, in the summer of 1968, which conflates the egoless state one reaches during intercourse with religious experience. It was these lectures that led him to become notorious in India, a reputation that never left him. In his spiritual gangster days on the ranch in Oregon, when his robes turned glitzy and gold, and he did a daily drive-by in one of his 96 Rolls Royces, as if he were royalty, or worse, on the set of Dynasty, he became known in various non-sannyasin circles as Bhagwan Sri Rolls Royce. Thank you so much for listening. That was really, really nice to read to you, and I hope you can get your hands on my book and that you really, really enjoy it. Thank you. Well, you know you've made it as a corrupt guru when people start adding luxury car brands to your name. Mm. 
the irony of Lily's father being taken in by a cult leader will not be lost on any of you listening, and it's certainly not lost on her. If there is a lesson to be taken from this book, and there are many, it is that boundaries are good, especially when it comes to your family. A lesson I'm still learning. Thank you so much for that reading, Lily. And if, like me, you were captivated by her fascinating story and her brilliant prose, I highly recommend that you get your hands on a copy of Sins of My Father. It is in your local indie bookshop, or you can support our podcast by getting it from our shop on bookshop.org. This book is published by the brilliant people at Weidenfeld and Nicholson, a publisher who is doing very well right now. And we're going to be giving away a copy in our newsletter. So subscribe to our newsletter for a chance to win and also check out our YouTube channel while you're at it because we've just shoved loads of new stuff on there. Please do share this episode with friends who love memoirs and who like to talk about boundaries or indeed who just love the salon. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon and take good care of yourself.